0: Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. And on this episode, we'll kick off with a conversation on criminal justice. With the recent passing of the bipartisan prison reform bill named the First Step Act, it's time to examine what changes are in the bill and how it may or may not help us move towards better criminal justice reform. After that, you'll be hearing from reporter Anne-Marie Schieber on the topic of unemployment. Last week, we talked about the importance of being in the right frame of mind to find a job, and this week, we show you why it is so hard to get out of that slump. Also, on a last note, sometime in the near future, this podcast will go through a name change. Shortly, Radio Free Actin will change to Actin Line. That's two words, Actin Line. We'll be bringing you the same content every Wednesday, and you won't need to resubscribe. With the growth this podcast has experienced over the past year, we want to give it a fresh new name and new face, so be on the lookout. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else where you get your podcast. Here to talk with me about the subject of criminal justice is Sarah Estelle. Associate Professor of Economics at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Sarah, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks, Caroline. It's great to be here. Today, Monday, December 17, the Senate will vote to advance the legislation of the recently introduced criminal justice bill, and it's being called the First Step Act. By the time the segment is released, of course, right after the new year, we'll know whether or not the bill has passed. And I thought that in the wake of this issue, it would be timely to revisit it, You know, regardless of whether or not the bill passes, I think that it's smart to review some of the benefits or drawbacks of a few of the policies in this newly introduced bill. First, as always, I want to discuss the basic groundwork of this issue. So if you could briefly summarize, why is criminal justice reform needed? And I know that is such a huge question, but I think, like I was saying, it's an issue that many people know we need, but there are, of course, people who just aren't as familiar or close to the subject as others. So if you could briefly explain for us maybe one or two top reasons why is criminal justice reform needed?
1: I think it depends on who you ask, and then at the end I would say all of the above, right? If it was a multiple choice test, I would I would probably uh, agree with all of these. One reason is public budgets, um, and so the expenses associated with incarcerating people uh, are extreme. The United States is uh, an outlier in terms of our incarceration rate. Uh, we have the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world, incarceration rates have been increasing, uh, even though crime rates have been decreasing. Now, fortunately, that's um, those incarceration rates have been decreasing somewhat over the last decade, but not enough to take us out of that that number one spot uh, in terms of our incarceration rate. So, I think public budgets, but also you know, concerns about justice and knowing that there are racial disparities, um, knowing that incarceration affects families and communities in ways, uh, that are long lasting, knowing that over 90% of people who are incarcerated will be released and go on to, um, live in their communities and a sense that we're not doing right by them or putting them in a position where they can stay out of prison, uh, serving their families and their communities well Uh, and so all of these give rise to concerns that our criminal justice approach uh, is not effective.
0: When you say that we're the country that has the most incarcerations why is that? Also that's a huge question that (laughs) I'm sure could take episodes upon episodes to discuss but I I guess what is the number one reason that you believe that to be true?
1: I think one of the reasons we have a higher incarceration rate and this is good to bring up because it is at the forefront for many people at the discussion of criminal justice reform is um, the way we handle drug enforcement. A number of people are incarcerated, whether at the federal or the state level, for nonviolent drug offenses, and until recently, those were handled in a way that didn't give judges uh, very much discretion about how to sentence, and so kept people incarcerated for long periods of time for things that some people would consider a victim. Crime. Now we can kind of talk about what victimless means, but uh, nonviolent crime that could keep people in prison for 25 years. Um, that, I think, is an outlier in terms of how we treat drugs uh, in the United States relative to other countries.
0: So I, I know that you have done so much research into this subject how did you become so personally invested in this topic?
1: So I'll be honest, um, my initial interest in this topic was just one of comparative advantage. Uh, I think economists have this um, amazing set of tools, both in terms of theory and empirics for grappling with tough questions of human behavior. Uh, and so initially, I was mostly just interested in in figuring out hard questions. Uh, then once I started digging into it, I think the just variety of human flourishing related issues that come out of this are are just so obvious and and pervasive. Um, So if we think of criminal justice as the whole period and system and pipeline between the commission of a crime uh, through uh, policing to criminal prosecution to sentencing and on to potentially incarceration, parole and probation, and then reentry, and you think about uh, the behaviors at each of those stages and what the incentive structures are. You think about the human costs associated with each of those experiences for the offender certainly for victims as well, uh, for the offender's family, and so on. There are just a number of questions here that involve complex human behavior. And frankly, I don't know a discipline that's better able to uh, grapple with some of these consequences, unintended and otherwise, of policy and people's own behaviors. Now, I want to switch
0: gears here and get closer to the issue at hand, specifically the bill being voted on today. We know that The First Step Act would, quote, primarily create more opportunities for federal prisoners to earn time credits by participating in recidivism reduction programs to help better prepare them for life after their release. Also, this bill would enable evidence-based rehabilitation programs like the Prison Fellowship to be utilized in federal prisons nationwide. (laughs) There is a lot there, and there's a lot that I just quoted, but I first wanted to find some terms before we move on. So what exactly is
1: recidivism? Recidivism basically means a proclivity to or in particularly committing crimes again. Um, So it's that return to criminal activity. Uh, In research, usually people mean that someone has been accused of and convicted of a crime, but I think it's worth keeping in mind that people can recidivate without getting caught. Uh, And so we always want to understand that as well. We'd like to actually reduce... The commission of future crimes, not just Mm -hmm. people's getting caught and incarcerated again. (laughs) So it's a really important issue.
0: So when this bill proposes to create more opportunities, quote, for federal prisoners to earn time credits, what exactly does that look like? Are you in favor of that?
1: One thing that I am in favor of is policymakers being aware of incentive structures. And I see that. I mean, it comes out even in the language of the bill that they're setting up incentives for people who are currently incarcerated to engage in more recidivism reduction programming. I am in favor of aligning incentives for people, the majority of whom will be released into their communities to do things that we believe work at reducing recidivism. I'm not aware of how they're they're defining evidence-based. Uh, I think that's a big challenge. I say that from experience because I have a, a paper myself uh, with a colleague um, at Notre Dame about the harshness of a sentence and how that affects uh, the likelihood of future crimes. And it's tough. It's a really tough question. But to the extent that our bureaucracy, and particularly the Board of Prisons, uh, is able to identify uh, what programs work well. I think aligning incentives such that all of our incarcerated people engage in those to you know to the maximum extent is is a good thing.
0: So I know that this bill only affects federal prisoners, making up about three percent of all current incarcerations, and it's still one of the most comprehensive prison reform bills to be passed in quite a while. Would this make a dent then? Or no?
1: I think it will make a dent in the space of ideas. Um, for sure. There's discussion going on in various states as well. I think there's a bipartisan discussion going on at all levels around the country and has been for a a few years, and so this is helpful in that regard. I think it's helpful for federal prisoners to have these incentives aligned and other kind of reductions in the harshness of sentences that we also see in that bill. Whether it's going to have a particularly strong effect, though, because of the way the incentives are set up uh, is unclear. For example, the incentives are intentionally stronger among those who would be judged low uh, risk of recidivism, and the time reduction that would come with engaging in anti-recidivism programs would actually be less for those who are high risk, which is in some sense counterintuitive. There are also a number of categories of of crimes that people who have committed those crimes won't even qualify for the time reduction. If our main concern is that most of these prisoners will be in their communities, again, I think we should hope for a little bit broader application of the incentives than actually what's there.
0: So I want to stress how important important this is. Um, If no bill were being passed or if this wasn't a discussion being had and things were just left as they are, how does the criminal system currently affect families and individuals?
1: That's a really important question. You know, even from the level of my research, I don't think that I can actually observe what are probably the most problematic impacts of this high incarceration rate we have. As a side note, one of the things I like about this First Step Act is that it explicitly encourages um, the system to place convicted offenders in a prison within 500 miles of their residence, closer to their families, if at all possible. I like that because I think one of the often misunderstood or unnoticed aspects is the effect that an incarcerated parent has on a child, on loved ones in general, and then also the impact that separation has on the incarcerated individual and the networks they have available to them when they reenter society. Economics is good uh, for helping us think broadly about costs and benefits, and that's why I appreciate this question so much. And in fact, we can think of criminal activity as the result of weighing um, costs and benefits. Now, this isn't to say that um, folks who commit crimes have undertaken some you know, level of calculus or something in, in this decision. But we know that when they have connection to family, to their community, to work, uh, that criminal activity is less likely. And so I think in all the ways that incarceration disconnects an offender from his community, that the cost are broader uh, than our numbers even can fully uh, reflect.
0: So my last question is pretty large, but I'm just hoping that you can stress what you see as being most important. Um, if you were drawing up a bill, what would you put in it?
1: I guess I would reemphasize first some of the miscellaneous items in, in this particular bill. Primarily, this bill was, is targeted at recidivism, Reduction through these programs, as we've mentioned, also reducing the harshness or typically length uh, of a sentence. But there are some other um, miscellaneous items which I think fall within a category that I would say these are somewhat no-brainers. For example, it makes it illegal to restrain a, a pregnant prisoner. Um, I think that's important. The item that places an individual nearer to their home if at all possible uh, I think that's important. I think it, you know, it protects uh, faith-based initiatives towards recidivism reduction from any kind of discrimination. Uh, I think that's important. We need to draw on all of our resources. I th- Think the language even in the legislation is helpful, and in, in the debate we hear today that we're not talking about criminals, uh, that we're not talking about convicts. Um, certainly, people commit crimes, uh, people can be convicted of those, but that we hear language like offenders or. Uh, persons who are reentering society. I think all of these things are good. I guess the overarching suggestion I would have for this whole debate is we realize that there is not a simple linear relationship between the length of a sentence and the probability that a former offender uh, will re-offend. In my research uh, with my co-author David Phillips at Notre Dame, uh, we have found that uh, it depends on what the crime is, that for some crimes, longer sentences do reduce uh, future criminal activity, and for others, it has no impact at all. Keep in mind that that means there's an enormous expense to the public budget and to the incarcerated individual's family, but with zero reduction in crime for some categories. So I like, again, that this bill draws on evidence-based recidivism prevention programs. And I guess I would like to see that pushed more to the level of sentencing, uh, encouraging judges uh, to think about the evidence we have about the effects of the sentences uh, that they're putting down.
0: Well Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank I you. had a lot of
1: fun talking about this with you today and I
0: think that is it's such an important issue and I really hope to revisit it again with you before the year end. Oh, I would love oh,
1: thank to. You. Thank you.
0: How does community revitalization work and what does it require? Tackling such complex, deeply rooted issues as intergenerational poverty, dangerous environments, high crime, and failing schools presents many challenges. Join us at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan on January 24 to hear how the purpose-built communities model fosters a coordinated, holistic approach based on quality and focused on sustainability. To register, visit acton.org events.
2: The more skills you have, the easier it is to find a job. Not necessarily.
3: With as many uh, resumes, cover letters, and applications that I have submitted, with as many eyes that I have that look at those before I submit it and say, oh, this looks great, and then to not to not get a call back.
4: I've been searching for four years. I've had... Um... A gig and in short-term gigs and doing consulting on and off. When you're in transition, you become an outsider and feel socially excluded from the traditional candidates who are applying, who are currently employed.
2: In transition, it is how skilled workers describe their painful predicament: the inability to find full-time permanent employment after leaving jobs earlier than they wanted.
3: Well, I'm. Uh... 24-year um, military veteran.
2: That's Joseph.
3: My professional career
4: extends past 20 years now.
2: And James.
3: I totally and thoroughly enjoyed my career and was very happy that I was contributing to America and its safety and security in a big
4: way. I'm not typically a job hopper. I like to move into a company, put down some roots, and build a career um, through uh, work ethic and showcasing my passion for marketing.
2: Career professionals with graduate degrees in the throes of a job search and sensitive about giving their last names. Both had been with their last organizations for a number of years. Then the market changed. The military downsized. Both men were forced into early retirement, giving them more free time to pursue other dreams, but financially and socially feeling
4: less free. Your freedom to go to have Starbucks, go to the theater with your friends, or purchase something nice for yourself because you did a good job. When you're with
3: a company and then you're no longer with them, it's almost like a divorce and friends have to choose which person they're gonna go with. And if your friends were, and the people that you predominantly associated with were those people from work, well of course they're not going to be associating themselves with you because you're not part of their in-crowd
2: anymore not ready socially or financially to retire, Joseph and James began sending out resumes and scouring job sites. In fact, both thought they were no more qualified than they are now. But weeks turned into months, months into the years, and no
4: bites. One of the friction points I'm having in this transition is um, many HR professionals um, are not able to see... uh, the transferability of my skills and how they can provide value to their unique business.
3: Here we are at those upper levels. There's fewer positions in the upper levels to fill, so the screening becomes much harder.
2: What Joseph and James thought were assets now seem to be liabilities. Joseph is trying to work in a city where his spouse has a job, but it's not in a city where there's a military presence where veterans have no problem getting jobs with civilian employers.
3: They understand and can easily transition right. people into their companies. They're actually, they're, they're, they're sought out, um, they're sought after, whereas here on some of the, in some of the outlying areas, that's not necessarily the case.
2: James thinks he could provide value by mentoring less experienced workers, but he's getting the sense employers think of his age in a different way.
4: Yeah, after 40, you are in a bucket, a legal bucket that says, you know, if you fire this person, age discrimination will be um, reviewed. So after you've hit that mark, that automatically puts you into a high risk.
2: Worrying is like praying for bad things to happen. (laughs) James and Joseph have found support in a group run by volunteer job coaches called EARN. The coaches teach members how to use a work search process diagram, which details, for example, how many face-to-face meetings they should have each day. And they learn strategies on getting past human resource screening departments.
1: The plan removes
2: the need to worry.
3: I've had several plans and I look at those from a strategic point just like a company would do. There are several um, silver linings um, to being in transition. If they're trying to acquire a new business or if they're trying to save their business and so you you apply
4: those same principles back. My job as an employee is to make the owner's money. A lot of people forget that. What is it that I'm doing and what's the activity
3: that I'm doing that will ultimately lead towards being gainfully employed.
2: It is a search intended to find a fit. No two people bring the same set of skills and experience. Job applicants simply ask employers to think more creatively about their candidacy, to consider that nobody wins when value sits on the sidelines.
0: As always, thank you for listening. To learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, email us at rfa acton.org or leave us a message at 888-705-4180 to give us feedback and to let us know what you think of the show. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to swing over to iTunes and leave a review and rating. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.